that time in your 20s, slightly aimless between things is one of the most important times, I think, in your life because you do all of that preparation for mm. what you're going to become. Pretending, oh, of course, I've flown loads of times, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Because, you know, there was a girl you'd fancy on the seat beside you and you weren't going to look scared. should have got the ferry. Welcome to Continental Riffs, a series of conversations between pairs of artists, makers and producers that considers Europe through a cultural lens. Objects and experiences chosen by the contributors punctuate each episode as they consider ideas, emotions and perhaps realisations that come to them through having their focus on the continent of Europe. This edition's contributors know each other a while, as you'll hear. Both enjoy extensive international and Irish acclaim for what they do. We recorded architect Andrew Clancy and actor Killian Murphy in RTE's Radio Nogueltheth Studios in Bailinangal in Kerry something that got the pair of them talking about place and the imprint it leaves on us, before turning to their families, who they say gave them their first experiences of Europe. Well, it's actually my fault that we're doing this recording in, in the West Kerry, <laughs> because I spent so much time here. Because I, 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 since I've been coming here as a small boy, like I felt t- totally fallen in love with this place for whatever reason. I suppose that's how well, your parents kind of imprint that on you when you're young, don't they? I'm sure you're the same. I think so. I think there's places that you, that grow into you and you grow into them. It's this kind of riff of it because I know that when you're here you're you're different and I'm different in this place and I think similarly in the west of Ireland or in Dublin but then, you know, we've been talking on and off now for eight or nine years about things. And it was a really nice opportunity to just squeeze in another chapter in this ongoing conversation. conversation. And having a bit of having a bit of a laugh. <laughs> God, I think that's also a little you know, peculiar to Irish people if we're doing something serious, I think. My mother was a French teacher, she's retired, and my dad was a Kigger scholar and he's also retired. But so my mum spoke French, my dad spoke Irish, and then it seemed to be the case that we would go on holidays between like the west of Ireland and camping holidays in France. It was kind of odd because you go to an island, like sometimes we go to the Aran Islands and we go to West Kerry and to the Blasco Islands. So you go to an island off an island off Europe <laughs> for a holiday. Or then we go on a camping holiday to, to France, like all of us in the car, you know. Squeezed in. Yeah, my mum in the front, my dad in the front and then in the back, me, my brother, my two sisters, one of them in the you know, the baby chair. Yeah. And then my grandmother as well. And then driving down from yeah. the ferry to some camping spot somewhere. Yeah, we'd do a few camping spots, yeah. But it lo- so it, was, it wasn't a kind of a conceptual thing. It was just, a, you know, a very exciting holiday destination at the time. That's interesting. It's like speaking Irish, like in the Aran Islands or somewhere like that. Yeah. And then speaking. So you were speaking French or trying to speak French as a child or? Um, it's not until secondary school and then I would have learnt it in school and then my mum would have taught me at home as well. So there was an awful lot of education. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and French cooking probably. And well, my mom, yeah, we'd go there and we'd, we'd like on the campsite, we'd, you know, we'd make the effort to, to get some French into the, into the cook. But it was, it was quite interesting because, you know, you'd be having your little plot and then you, an, an Italian family would, would turn up next to you and there might be a German family and... And you'd all be playing ping pong or messing around in the pool. So we lo- we loved those holidays. They were not all of us being in the car. That, that could be a, get a little raucous. But the actual and you know putting up a tent in the 
torrential sort of summer storms you have, but I have fond memories of them, those holidays. And what about you then? When what, when, it, when were your, your first adventures yes. in Europe? Yeah, like the adventures came later. Yeah. But so as a kid, we didn't travel very much. I, we certainly never went to Europe. And so Europe sort of arrived. Like we used to holiday in the west of Ireland in Lakatoric with my mum's family down there. And they were farmers and they knew farmers. And so you heard about Europe via headage payments. And yeah. The, the cap. Yeah. And this thing, this idea, this concept, I mm. suppose, and something sort of to be foxed, you know, sort of yeah. a little bit to be diced with and yeah. a little bit of like, say, you know, these and even things like, say, hearing about David Norris's court case success. And yeah. I was a 10 or 11 at the time. And it's at the breakfast table because it's on Morning Ireland and asking mum and her just going, well, I suppose what Europe is saying is that as long as you're not hurting anyone, you can do what you want. Yeah. And you suddenly found this very immediate connection, but there was an authority there. There was something there that was distant, but that somehow knew things or allowed us to speak in a way that we weren't naturally speaking about in the community I was in. And then there was this other side of it, which was that in the West also, there were all these, I don't know if you'd call them hippies, but certainly alternatively minded people, yeah. Dutch and French and German, and they'd bought small land holdings. And it was like Dutch cheese and cloudy yeah. apple juice and the food of Europe stitched uh-huh. into the wild of Galway. So it was both very close and very abstract yeah, in some that's weird way. They kind of started all that organic, alternative kind of green movement in Ireland, really, didn't they? I yeah. think they Sustainable, did. yeah. We owe them a lot, I think. We owe all that mixture and conversational stuff, I think, in, in the sense of how local culture and arrived culture has always been sort of mapped onto each other here. Yeah. And it's just the latest round of all of that. Since I've been coming here as a small boy, like I felt t- totally fallen in love with this place, despite having spent so much time traveling with work. Hmm. All, all over Europe and in the States, but I seem to be drawn back to this part of the world always. So for whatever reason, I suppose that's how what your parents kind of imprint that on you when you're young, don't they? I'm sure you're the same. I think so. I think there's places that you that grow into you and you grow into them. Mm. And and then there's this question then about where you are yourself yeah. and where you go to become yourself, which is this it's this kind of riff of it, because I know that when you're here, you're you're different and I'm different in, in this place. And I think similarly in the west of Ireland or in Dublin, but then. It was this interesting thing for me, so it was maybe because we hadn't travelled or yeah. we didn't, that I really wanted to get to Europe in the sense of, like, we started studying architecture and you're hearing about all these great buildings and it all seems very far away and terribly perfect. And all I was aware of was that, you know, Palladian houses were burnt out and mm. you found ruined cottages and woods and Dublin itself was basically a car park yeah. when I was a kid and... Then I remember being in second year of college and we had to go to Barcelona, you know. Yeah. And God, you had to be terribly cool. I remember pretending, oh, of course, I'd flown loads of times, you know. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a girl you'd fancy on the seat beside you and you weren't going to look scared. And uh should have got the ferry. should have got the ferry. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly longer route. Yeah. Although, yeah. Maybe uh, more, more adventure. More <laughs> Uh, and then you, I do remember that in Barcelona and, you know, this kind of feeling that if you zoom in on us, like you see cells and when you zoom in, out on people, you see cities and then you sort of act differently in the new city. It sort of teaches you in a bit. And I remember walking around Barcelona that first time and like we were just messing. We weren't up to anything particularly important, but the smell of sewage 
And that felt incredibly exotic to me, <laughs> along with the amazing architecture and everything. Yeah. And, you know, the colour of the bin trucks and yeah. how people hung on street corners and how they moved. And there was a ritual and a sort of a dance to it that was very different to the beat of Dublin. Yeah. And there was a charge off that. And how was it for you? Because I guess it was 20, maybe 19 when that happened. Yeah. Like, did you continue then, you know, once family holidays stopped, did you begin your own voyages in Europe? And Oh, I had a pretty disastrous voyage in Europe um, during college. I went with a friend, not interrailing, more like hitchhiking around uh. France. But it was a dis- I think actually we have this this tendency in common, uh, you and I, from knowing you quite a while now, is to uh, kind of lose everything, <laughs> all valuable um, things like passports and wallets. And yeah. so I, I remember losing my... Well, I lost both, in fact. I lost my wallet and my passport at different times during that trip, leaving them, you know, in truck stops or bars or wherever. But we, we, ended, we, we, went, from the, we went from Paris down to Avignon is where we ended up. And we I remember staying there in a tent again. It's an awful lot of camping involved in my experiences with Europe. And then realising someone in some way got in touch with me and told me that my passport was somewhere in the middle of France. And I then had to hitch back up and find the passport in some like local Mar- Marie's or whatever office and, and the whole town being closed while I was there and just waiting around and then hitching back down. But that was a very important time for me because even though it, was, it wasn't a long trip, but I remember being in the campsite in, in Avignon and I had got the part in Disco Pigs, this play that Ender Walsh wrote, yeah. which was my first ever job. And he posted me the play to the tent in Paris and it actually arrived into the tent. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Gas. How, how do you even post to a tent? I guess they posted to the campsite right. and the lads knew us as the fellas with the bedraggled tent with the piece of cheese, <laughs> same piece of cheese at the bottom of the tent for three weeks. Anyway. And how were you hitching? I never hitched. I don't know, I was too nervous or something. So how would you hit? Who were you hitching with? I was sitting with a friend from college and we sort of, you know, you, if you'd stop the payages of the motorway wow. and, and you'd get a lift there and then they'd be going somewhere else and then you'd just hang around there uh, looking like sad and sheepish and kind of lonely and then you might get picked up by a trucker. And they were generally sound, but, but you know, it would depend on the quality of the music in the, in the cab. What kind of music? Awful, but, you know, <laughs> you're, you're all trash. But occasionally you get someone who had a, like a, a Rolling Stones cassette and that was okay. And then off you'd go. That's amazing. That sounds great. Yeah. And and then didn't you, you, you had a long experience with, with France though, didn't you? I did, yeah, a little later. And um, I, you know, I was working in Dublin and I think I'm terrible at making decisions. I sort of wait for things, to, you know this well about me. I wait for things to take their course and carry them with me in a way. Mm. Although I've heard people claim it's more artful than that, but then... So I'd met this girl and she was a French girl and she was a banker working in Dublin and we were going out and four months after we were going out she was moving back to Paris and then she thought well that was it and of course I was sort of looking for an excuse to, to leave Dublin anyway. Mm. In your early 20s? Yeah, right. very young I think and then so I moved to Paris and I lived there on and off for guts of two years huh. and I think I was more in love in the, with the city yeah. than the uh, relationship which was troubled you know. Yeah. But it was an amazing kind of an event for me, which is to become familiar with the place. And I was teaching in TU Dublin at the time, DIT. And yeah. They were very kind. They'd group my days together every two or three weeks. And you'd come over and you'd do three or four days teaching. And I'd met the fellow I was starting out this practice with, Column, and we were just getting going on Clancy Moore. And 
she'd go off to work and I'd get on my bike and I'd go down to Bibliotheque Nationale and I'd try and work. But like I was sort of not working. It was all sort of a failure, you know. And I was terribly alone and terribly clear that this had to look like a success from the outside. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just sort of, I, I, I really felt I was treading water, but I wasn't now in retrospect. Like I was doing a lot of reading about process, about writers' yeah. processes in particular. Architects are terrible at talking about process. We mythologize a lot. Yeah. And I found a lot in their works there that I found very valuable. And I was doing a bit of writing myself, terrible short stories, but then also trying to work out things about architecture because I was also trying to draw these first few buildings that yeah. we were doing. And we were hitting all kinds of roadblocks because the orthodoxies that we'd been taught turned out to be complete fabrications. And right. creative process seemed very different to the way we were told, not top down, but bottom up. Yeah. And actually, geez, there was one amazing day like where I guess it was late autumn and the Bibliothèque Nationale is like a failed building, Grand Projet, Mitterrand, you know, four towers at the corners shaped like books open and the books were going to go in there, you know, and then there was a courtyard down below for the staff. But of course, you can't put books in towers because the light and the yeah. heat. So they put the books in the courtyard and the staff in the towers so they have to walk a kilometre for a feckin' meeting. And then the books are in this courtyard and there was supposed to be this pine forest in the middle. But of course, the beetles that live on the pine forest eat books. <laughs> so they had to seal the courtyard. So the, this pine forest you couldn't get to, a courtyard that didn't work, yeah. towers that were there for no reason, all the failures and hubris of architecture. And it just somehow it worked. And I remember one day I went looking for Beckett and looked in the Irish section and the English section. He wasn't there and talked to somebody. And of course, he was in the French section. Interesting. And remember taking that like there's a hole there's shelves and shelves of Beckett there mm. and pulling the books off the shelves and finding things that I'd never read before but of course he was French and Irish and plural and yeah and that felt like a moment for me and then kind of sitting on the terrace overlooking the courtyard with one of the books I was looking at and uh, that evening and it was just amazing it was like because the trees are isolated all the starlings in that part of Paris just come in in vast collapsing murmurations like oh. a like a fingerprint breathing in on itself or something <laughs> yeah. and nesting in the tree. And it was the most surreal and the most strange and the most sighted I'd felt in Paris. Yeah. In this failure of a building, reading a book by a French Irishman and lost and found. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But then you've engaged with Europe in lots of ways. But I know that London, which you know has an ambiguous relationship with Europe, but is European, was really important to you also. And I'm just wondering, how did you find that? Like spending time in a city like that? Well, it's really interesting listening to you because I think that time in your 20s when you are slightly slightly aimless or between things is one of the most important times, I think, in your life because you do all of that preparation for mm. what you're going to become. I think you called it slow thinking and, and I did an awful lot of slow thinking. But before, we were, we were in London for, for 14 years um, and the reason we ended up there was because my wife was doing her master's and she had got a place in New York and she'd got a place in London. But obviously going to New York was a huge immigration thing with visas and all that. So mm -hmm. we decided we'd just go to London. You could just move there. There's no problem. Uh, so we ended up there. But before that, I'd done plays and taken them around Europe. I mean, we we did Disco Pigs in Hungary. I mean, before it joined the EU. And then we did Disco Pigs in, in uh, Germany. What was that like? How would you do Disco Pigs? In Hungary, like where they probably didn't speak English and they wouldn't know who Roy Keane was. <laughs> no, doesn't everybody know who Roy Keane? <laughs> they they did a live translation 
I remember of the play. So you have this audience that is completely transfixed, but focused in a way that you wouldn't normally get from an audience. And like the play is very, very de dense linguistically. And but so this has been live translated. They were wearing earphones, and so it was a very, very silent audience. And then at the end, they kind of they they erupted, and it was this, it was a festival. We were only there for two days. It was one of my favorite trips away with the play, and then we did it in Germany and and all around the UK, and then North America. But then. Yes, yeah, so then I ended up again in Lon in London, sort of by mistake. But then I did a lot of that um, that thing that you're talking about, just being with yourself and with your thoughts and reading. Because I didn't go to study drama or anything, so I was just reading plays and reading books. And I spent an awful lot of time on the tube. I loved the tube, just looking at people. I mean, like a weirdo, you know, just <laughs> like observing people, because all that all acting is is human be is is kind of trying to replicate human behavior and. You were all kind of amateur detectives, amateur psychologists. So I would, I just love the, the the organized chaos of the tube, and um, you know, you get all these crazy eccentrics on there, and you know, you, at that time you were still allowed booze on the tube. So at nighttime it was raucous, and then you know, I'd just travel around on it, looking at people, and I loved it, and then this sort of anonymity, this crazy anonymity that because in this massive metropolis, I just found it very um, exciting. That anonymity is hard to find here right it's very hard to find here or, or i think in, in ireland in general yeah it's just because of the, the nature of the population and because everyone knows someone who knows you right in yeah. a good way in but a, yeah <laughs> but if you were sitting on the dart watching a family or something or watching somebody chances are there's a loop that loop back to you and besides there's only one dart line there's no network you yeah. can't get lost in it yeah and it's so you'd be on the tube and you'd just be riding it. Yeah, and re like reading, just being in that kind of flow of humanity, you know, and I and I loved it. And you, you, the chances of seeing the same person again were, were zero, negligible, you know. Um, I found it very sti stimulating just being a tiny, insignificant uh, presence in this vast place. And what were you reading? Just trying to catch up on our, like like plays that I should have read if I went to college and... And, and loads of books and then watching movies. It was a very exciting time. So it's an education then. So the anonymous city, looking at people, reading, say, Chekhov or something yeah. on a tube. Yeah, so might... pretentious. Well, <laughs> what's pretentious? Do you know, like, I don't... Pretentious is the thing that you do as a sort of artifice, as a sort of mask. Yeah. Whereas when you're anonymous, is it pretentious? It's sort of... It, it's not. It's invisible. It's... I guess it's what you I needed to do. I guess it's, it's what you needed yeah. to do in that time in Paris. You're kind of finding yourself, finding your voice, you know, finding out what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And what for you, I guess, what your practice is going to be and shaping your practice. And for me, I, I suppose it's shaping taste, isn't it? And things yeah. Like that. yeah. And seeing. And seeing is a thing that changes you, you know, when cities change you and yeah. these places act on us in very powerful ways. And I think it's this interesting beat of it where I think that idea of the slow thinking of getting lost in somewhere, because you mm -hmm. can't really get lost in Ireland, or in, you can in a bad way, but not in these kinds of ways. Mm. And we don't talk enough about it to younger generations, that there's times that it is a struggle, and that's important because that kind of thinking's hard won. Yeah. And your brain is literally reshaping itself. Yeah. It's a difficult feeling. It's a confusing feeling. But you're laying down stratified, slow thinking that you can then pull on much faster, much later. It's As like you get older. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I people say, you know, occasionally, and I'm sure they say things to you that are positive. They say, oh, you're very good at talking or you're very good at this. And I do remember in Paris just like 
really fighting to find a way to articulate some things I was feeling, you know, mm. and failing utterly. But there was this nice release then about coming back to Dublin and to Colin Moore, the fellow I was starting out this practice with and teaching with students and every time a little different. And then there was this funny thing happening at the same time, which was whatever we want to call that thing, the tiger or whatever in Ireland. And yeah. And I remember this sort of like you'd say to somebody in a pub, oh, where are you living? And I'd say I'm living in France and they'd say economic basket case. <laughs> and there's this funny thing about Ireland, isn't there? Our insecurity our I think we constantly live with the fear of being a failed state. And then there's this moment where the clouds part and we're walking in the sunshine briefly and we confuse it for being anointed by God. <laughs> and I do remember that and then coming back to Paris and going, it doesn't feel like an economic basket case here. Yes, racial tensions, all those issues, yeah. serious issues, but much wealthier than Dublin on a civic level. you know. Yeah. And in its confidence about building institutions and structures for people. Yes. And it's something that I think we're beginning to learn from Europe and we're beginning to borrow a bit. And maybe they need to borrow a little bit of our national confusion. <laughs> <laughs> We should talk a little bit about, because um, what I've always enjoyed about working with you over the years has been the conversation. Maybe it's something unique to your practice. I think the, what, why we've worked together is that I also enjoy conversation in the, in the, as a part of a process in terms of creating something or making something. Do you think that that's something that's you know unique to your practice, which has developed you know due to that slow thinking you put in, or is it something that's uniquely Irish? It's really difficult to know. I do know that when we started to work together, it was the first time that made sense as a process. Right. And it was something half formed. It was shaping in our practice. It is what we believed. We were doing our PhD in Barcelona and it was coming out in our thinking. But I remember sitting down with early on and talking about conversation as a method and you saying that's exactly how every new work happens in yeah. your life too. Yeah. And that there's no shape of the end. You know, there's just a... A form of inquiry, a conversation, which conversations are brilliant because you never know where they're going to go. Mm -hmm. Whereas an argument is terrible because it's about neither person shifting position at all. Yeah. And so a conversation is new knowledge fundamentally. And any creative act then can be a conversation and architecture in particular, because, you know, we're implicated in everything like government regulations, sustainability agendas, people's personal lives, their financial situations, the climate they're in, the culture they're in, how they like to cook, whether they like light on their face in the morning, yeah. whether they like a cold room to sleep in or a warm one. And so certainty is the least useful thing to an architect. Yeah. You make the thing to be more intelligent than yourself. Yeah. If it was the other way around, then sure, you just write it all down. Why yeah. would you make the thing? So I think there's something about that which I found was liberated in that. And I think it wasn't possible for me to have developed or for us to have developed that form of thinking without this relationship with other places. I mean, it's interesting because in your work, those conversations which have blossomed into into works, that seems to have been forged elsewhere too or in conversation elsewhere, do you know, with other people and people you would meet in cities that are like London, you can't meet them in other places. I would agree with almost all of that. And I think particularly when you're trying to make a new work, it, it's, it's all about the unknown and the sort of ambiguity and the nuance and this trying to distill ideas. There's certainty as your enemy. Mm. I enjoy that, particularly in theatre, that rehearsal process and just talking and finding things. It's my favourite part of the whole work. Mm. Even I, I enjoy it more than the actual performance, <laughs> which I shouldn't say, but I, it's, it's like a laboratory. 
Yeah. And then when you find the work and you put it up on your feet, then you're sustaining something. And that's the, uh, the, the sort of exploration part is finished. Do you know? I mean, it keeps evolving, but, but it has to remain within the parameters of what you've built, I suppose. But the actual coming into a, into a rehearsal room with nothing, just the script and some, maybe a bit of tape on the floor, like that is extremely exciting. And I found there was a lot of crossover when we were working together uh, with that. Mm. You know, and just it was just purely ideas exchange of ideas and again and I do think that that comes back from having achieved some level of confidence in your taste or your approach or your process as a younger individual and that seems for us to have involved a lot of traveling and particularly in in, in Europe and we, it's funny because we both did the Prague yeah trip at different times or very early after the curtain dropped right in in, in Czech Republic like it could have been the same year we don't know right yeah but I do remember that because my dad worked for Ian with Aaron and he used to just be able to give us free train travel in Europe once we were older than 18 until we were 21. Unbelievable. So now I know. I wish know. I knew you then. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I wish I'd taken more advantage of it. I only did it once. And it was a path that allowed you to travel on anything. Like yeah. First class, whatever you wanted. And, wow. uh, I remember missing a train in Paris, a normal train, first train. And there's a small train, two carriages. I'm not sure I'll get on this one. It's going to Basel also. God, it gets there ahead of the other one. And it's all these businessmen in their suits sitting down with their fine dining car <laughs> and looking at this sweaty pig of a man <laughs> expecting me to get thrown off. But of course I get there and eventually end up in Prague and falling with this English crowd and you're kind of having a good time over there. But like you feel the heft of the brutalist institutions mm-hmm. grinding up against romantic buildings. Yeah. And there was an energy off the place. And in Europe as an idea or as a possibility was very alive then. It yeah. felt... Very real mm. and very energizing. Yes. And I think it was around the same time where you, I think you, I guess you probably hitched there, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't. Th- I think we actually got a plane that time. So it was, I think it was, I don't know, 96 or 97 or something. Yeah, the reason it's still preserved, right, is because it was occupied. Obviously, it wasn't bombed from the sky. So you have all these, be- that beautiful city center that is still, you know, ancient and beautiful. I went there with a friend from school and we had it was outrageously tiny budget again we were camping that's why I refuse to camp anymore because I've done too much of it it's lasted romance <laughs> for me but I, I kind of outstanding memory I have of being in Prague was everything was so cheap do you remember like yeah it was, it's like 10p for yeah everything was 10p yeah. Except we were at one point we found this woman who sold latex masks like these very very life like latex masks of old men <laughs> so, so we bought two of these masks and we spent the whole holiday walking around Prague in character we developed these characters with these masks on like I mean all of the time <laughs> going to nightclubs showering at the campsite in the masks you know getting on the, the buses and the trains just walking around it, it was like some sort of possession but it was again it was this, that thing you will only do as a youngster but also probably only do abroad as a youngster. You, you know, you would never have done that at home in Cork City. And for me, or if I think back, I was, I was just developing how to be, how to create character, how to do, how to be performative. And I, you know, I didn't really understand the whole thing about masks or anything like that. But it was a lesson that we were just, you know, grappling with or kind of struggling with as kids, as gas. But that's beautiful story I mean how did you sleep in a mask when we, we took them off <laughs> <laughs> like, but uh, isn't that what we do though when we travel sometimes we take off masks and sometimes yeah. we put them on and there you go I remember in Paris and just immediately knowing that 
if you live in Paris, you never go up the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> but of course, if I was Irish, I would have. Yeah. And so you, I think that there's this thing. You've never been. Oh, no. I've yeah. picnicked under it many times yeah. with friends and beside the Rodin Gallery and all that stuff. But no, no, no. But the thing is that, again, that's another mask. It's another yeah. way of inhabiting a city. And for me, it's, it's interesting to go back to your question about is the conversational method or conversation an Irish thing? And I'm not sure only because I don't know enough mm-hmm. from other places. I do know that when you speak about it internationally, it resonates with people as a sort of a new idea. And yeah. here, I think maybe because we've always seen ourselves in relation to something else, either that's a, as a colonised country and then a post-colonial, but then also implicated in colony itself. And then this relationship with Europe as both liberation and economic prosperity and then disaster. And even if you wanted to avoid it, you can't avoid the conversation with places other than yourselves here. And then there's this tradition of the diasporic revolve that we do. A really rich tradition of the hyphenated Irish. And it's becoming really beautifully reinfused mm-hmm. and they, they are here but hyphenated identities and you, you realise that there's a plurality in conversation that's much more generous than any kind of certainty of national yeah. identity and I, I kind of find that it's interesting when you see Europe again toying with ideas of national yeah. clarity and actually to some extent here you can feel the edge of it Yeah, I don't know where I sit on things like the nation state and you're constantly asked I don't know if there is such a thing but there is people who are here and they are implicated in a cultural conversation. And I think, it's, I mean, even you were talking last night about just how many talented and amazing people there are in the arts sector and, and mm-hmm. that there's a space now, I think, f- for things to be said and things to be done here that I hope we seize, you know. It could collapse back to something easy and it's much richer when it's forming itself. Mm. And we can't make it easy and clear. Do you know what I mean? Well, it goes back to it being a conversation, yeah. not a, not a kind of a, an outcome or a, or, or a result. It's still a process. Yeah, that's the exciting bit. Because I think all of the conversations, however much they kind of deviate or wander off, I think they inevitably end up informing the main conversation, which is about the work. I think that's always part of the creative process as well, you know, and having a bit of having a bit of a laugh yeah God. I think that's also a little bit of yeah or you know peculiar to Irish people you have to you have to there has to be a bit of messing if we're doing something serious I think before their continental rifts end contributors suggest something that catches for them the essence of Europe I think we're both probably the worst people to ask about our special objects given that we tend to lose everything. <laughs> so I think we've actually decided not, rather than objects which would probably be lost and forgotten that there would be more memories and experiences. You, you had a good one. Somewhere in the beat of all that Keen McLaughlin friend of mine an artist and I decided to go to Limassol Art College for the summer and somewhere in the middle of that we went to Nicosia and crossed through the the no man's land. And I remember because my grandfather was stationed there in the first UN mission and so that kind of resonated. And then you're crossing from this burly Greek side into this much more poor and calm Turkish side. And I don't know, somehow preferred it or something. And then you end up at the cathedral. The cathedral's a Gothic cathedral turned into a mosque. And because you're so close to the Middle East there, the cathedral's pointing at Jerusalem, but the mosque is oriented towards Mecca and there's quite a divergence in the geometry Mm. there. And so you have this really axial 
high and mighty Gothic cathedral and then woven across it at 45 degrees are these carpets pointing to the corner and it just felt like these two things in one place these two things collapsed into the superposition and it just feels to me like something essentially European that's beautiful and yourself I think you were talking about getting lost and I think there was that journey back up for your passport (laughs) well yeah I don't lose things anymore actually (laughs) it's interesting Uh, well less so but I remember going back to pick up the, pa- the passport and hitch it back up to somewhere in the middle of France. And then the wrong, it was the middle of the day, you know, the time when everything shuts down and there was nothing open. So I couldn't go and pick it up and was wandering around in the heat and just being very young and very kind of confused. Like there is in most French towns, there's this, just this little chapel. And of course, at that time, I, religion had no place in my life and you kind of rejected everything that you're brought up with, you know. But I remember going into the chapel and just sitting there and... Uh, there was no one in it mm-hmm. and it was cool and it's not something that I would have done at that time in my life I just spending like a couple of hours in there and nothing significant happened I didn't make any massive breakthrough or discovery about myself or anything I was just waiting for my passport but it stayed with me I would never have gone into it if it was a, a town in Ireland there was something about this place and being on my own and actually for that moment without any national identity because I didn't have a passport (laughs) (laughs) it was just special that's beautiful you've been listening to an edition of RT Radio's Continental Riffs with contributors architect Andrew Clancy and actor Killian Murphy And of course, do check out for further episodes of Continental Riffs on RT Radio 1 and extended podcast versions of The Conversations wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening.